Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Mark Riley, And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie. The greatest rock and roll star in the world. Ever. Ever. So, where are we going this time, Bob? B for beginnings, in David Bowie's case, Brixton. Brixton, OK then. So David Robert Jones was born the 8th of January 1947 in Brixton, South London. His mother, Margaret Mary Peggy Kneeburns, was born in Kent, had Irish ancestry. A father, there were poor immigrants, came over uh, and settled in Manchester, actually. Good choice, good choice. Uh, at the end of the war, Peggy Burns was working as a waitress at the Ritz Cinema in Tunbridge Wells. Ah, which is where she met Bowie's father, Hayward Stenton John Jones. Uh, it was from Doncaster in Yorkshire. Uh, he ended up as a promotions officer for the children's charity Bernardo's. But at 21, this is the interesting thing, and you get the idea of the uh, Bowie jeans here. He wants to be in showbiz. He sees himself as an impresario. And he comes into an inheritance of uh, £3,000, which is a, a small fortune in the you know post-war days. Well, you find out a little bit later on how much he paid for his house, so mm. he, completely. Yeah. So he decides he leaves Yorkshire, goes to London, he wants to make his name in showbiz, and there he meets a 25-year-old Austrian girl called Hilda Louise, who'd escaped to London from the Nazis, and they got married. That's right. Now, she was an aspiring singer, and so John sank £2,000 again, so we've got like two-thirds of his inheritance mm. promoting her on a tour of the country, right? Uh, but nothing came of it, and then he spent the rest of the inheritance on a piano bar called Le boop a Doop. I love that. It's, you know, so, I mean, again, like you, I knew that he worked for St. Bernardo's, mm. but I didn't know any of this. Uh, he was in Charlotte Street, and uh, Hilda was the main attraction as a Viennese nightingale. Uh, so uh, he was trying. He was he definitely was. trying. Yeah, and uh, he spent his money on a theatre troupe and the nightclub, but the club failed within a year. Whoa. So, you know, he was a trier. By 1934, he was employed as a clerk at Dr Bernardo's in South London, and then he became the PR relations officer. Now, this is funny, because, like I say, so it's obviously in the genes there. So, he, you know, his dad wanted to be in show business. Yeah. His dad wanted to help other people's careers and stuff. And also, if you look at the PR aspect of it even, yeah. that featured heavily in Bowie's career career. So it's all there to be had, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it's all there. So as I mentioned before, so he meets Peggy at the Ritz Cinema in 1945. She already had two children uh, by the time they got together. One was given up for adoption at nine months old. The other was Terry Burns, whose father was a Frenchman who'd abandoned, uh, you know, soon after the birth. Mm. Terry, of course, which we'll get to later on in the series, later diagnosed with uh, schizophrenia and manic depression. As in Bowie's half-brother, referencing various songs. He's referenced so much, you know, mm. and Bowie, I mean, he was obviously never that far from Bowie's mind. I mean, he was really fearful of a similar kind of uh, affliction being put down on him, you know. Yeah. He, he just he followed him around, really, didn't he? It was a dark cloud, I think it's fair to say that, mm. you know. 
know. In 1946, a couple moved to 40 Stansfield Road, and that was near the border of uh, the South London areas of Brixton and Stockwell, and they bought a house for £500. So, oh. again, it shows you, he's lucky to do that, really. Yeah. He could have all gone up the swan, he couldn't. And uh, Bowie was born the following year, and John and Hilda were still officially married, but they divorced four days Four later. days after his birth. Oh. OK. The thing is, so John hadn't given up completely on showbiz. The dream was still there, and I love the fact that in the early 60s, he's still at it. Uh, he's working on a BBC TV kids show, which is uh, hosted by ventriloquist Terry Hall and his puppet Lenny the Lion. Brilliant. Uh, and so for a time, John even ran the Lenny the Lion fan club. Well, why wouldn't you? Oh, well, he would, wouldn't you? I'd love to. Uh, so, in the meantime, Bowie is attending Stockwell Infant School, started in 1951 until he was six. Uh, he moved to Bromley in uh, January of 53. I love this, though. During a trip to Yorkshire, his dad was seconded to Bernardo's in Harrogate. Bowie actually meets the Queen and Prince Philip and gets his picture taken in the local paper. So, somewhere, you know, in the archives of these papers, somewhere in West Yorkshire, there's a picture of Bowie and the Queen. Now, you did a bit of research. And I did. You, you went looking for this photograph, didn't you? And you couldn't find it. I couldn't. I wish I could, but I really couldn't. So, if anybody knows... Yeah, somebody get looking out there. And uh, this is really interesting and, and poignant. 1991, Bowie revisited the house he was born in on a tour bus. Can you imagine mm. being another passenger on the tour bus? And apparently he was got really upset, which is, you know, understandable. He said, it's a miracle. I should have probably been an accountant instead. Uh, this moment was witnessed only by a member of his band, according to Paul Trinker's biography, Starman. Yeah, of course. And he went back later, didn't he? It was, mm. It's only sort of transpired after his death, but, you know, he took his daughter Lexi over there just to show her, like, where he grew up. Yeah, and, and he once said, I left Brixton when I was still quite young, but that was enough to be affected by it. It left strong images in my mind. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. So B is also for Bromley. So he may have been born in Brixton, uh, but by the time he was eight years old, Bowie had moved to four Plaistow Grove in Bromley, having lived at a couple of other previous addresses. And he was attending Burnt Ash Junior School. And at the age of nine, he was in dance class. Uh, quite like the fact that his, his teachers remarked on how imaginative some of his moves were, uh, calling him vividly artistic and his poise supposedly astonishing for a child. And his voice, meanwhile, was just considered adequate by the school choir. So no great shakes on that department. No, absolutely. But the, the same year, his interest in music was further stimulated when his dad bought home a collection of American. American 45s by artists including the Teenagers, the Platters, Fats Domino, Elvis Presley and Little Richard. And we know that Little Richard had a massive effect on him, didn't he? Mm. Obviously he went to playing saxophone. He was just really taken particularly with Little Richard, I think. So uh, after listening to Little Richard's Tutti Frutti, Bowie would say... I had heard God. Mm. His dad also takes him to see Tommy Steele at the Finsbury Park Empire, 1956, <laughs> where David Bowie meets him afterwards and gets an autograph. Oh, how nice. How nice. I wonder if Tommy Steele remembers that. Yeah, well, I wonder if Tommy Steele got his autograph. Yeah. Probably not. He's only a toddler, wasn't he? So by 1958, he started going to Bromley Technical High School. And when he was 14, now this is an incident that, uh, well, affected his life. He was punched in the face by his mate, George Underwood, during uh, a bust-up supposedly over a girl. Yeah, it was. Well, I mean, I... I interviewed, I'm sure you've interviewed uh, George Underwood I haven't as well. actually, no. Right, OK, well, I interviewed him a long time ago. And it is all true, and that's mm. the thing about Bowie, isn't it? People say his eyes are a different colour, or were a different colour, but that wasn't the case at all. It was no. just that the, the pupil was just expanded all the time, yeah, wasn't it? It was, it was dilated. dilated just because it had been abused by his punch. Yeah, but they were still mates. Yeah, good mates, right Absolutely. to the end, actually. Uh, Bowie left school in 1963 with 1-0 level in art. Unsurprisingly. Well, there you go. And uh, school reports, this is great, variously described him as reliable and quiet, which might have changed <laughs> a little bit later. <laughs> a pleasant, 
friendly idler, Ooh. capable of better work with maturity. Well, he just didn't want to settle down and buckle down to work, did he? Because he had other things on his mind. And this is a good bit, a complete exhibitionist. If he was capable of continuous effort, his ability would have been put to better use. So he was here that he was taught by Owen Frampton, uh, yeah, that's Peter right. Frampton's dad. Yeah. And apparently he was such a liberal, forward-thinking fella that he was even trying to persuade his own son, Peter Frampton, to get on board with Bowie and go off in a musical direction, which is really liberating yeah. and so refreshing to hear. You would think that his dad would be pushing him into academia or making sure that you have something to fall back on. No, uh, big on, son. Get off with David Bowie. Yeah, he was an arty type, wasn't he, Owen Frampton? So, 1962, Bowie's playing at Chislehurst Caves nearby with his first band, The Conrads, which yeah. we'll go into detail later on. Rolling Stones play their status quo as well. Right. There's the Bromwell Club, which is in the Bromley Court Hotel, which Bowie also played the Conrads in as a 15-year-old in 1963. And, of course, two miles down the road, Beckenham High Street in Bromley, the Three Tons Pub. Right, the Beckenham Arts mm. Lab. Right, OK. So, looking at his record-buying uh, scenario, it's quite similar to mine, actually, though, of course, uh, oh, yeah. decades apart and all that. But, yeah, at 14, started making regular trips to Medhurst Department Store, a huge Victorian building that sold furniture and other household goods on Bromley High Street. The record department was housed in a long, narrow corridor overseen by a gay couple named Charles and Jim. Bowie would turn up most afternoons after school to check out new releases in their listening booths. Now, just uh, by the by, I used to go straight from St Greg's, where I went to school, oh, yeah. into Virgin Records, where they had the little seat at the end with the headphones, and you know, just sit there for a couple of hours listening to a load of different albums, you know? And, uh, and it's a great thing to do. I mean, they have listening posts now, don't yeah, they? And, and yeah. people don't really need to do it anyway because they can get hold of anything they one. Mm. That was uh, pivotal for me and yeah. obviously for Bowie as well. I love that idea that, you know, the old booths that you just sit in. So Bowie would go there most times after school. He'd buy singles, albums by Elvis, Little Richard. Uh, as time went on, he got his taste sort of became more eclectic. Certainly influenced by Terry, his half-brother, who was a big jazz head, so he introduced him to people like Charles Mingus, Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, that kind of thing. Right. So you can see Bowie's reach starting to expand already. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Bombas. 
Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. Ah, so B is also for Bolan, of course, Mark Bolan. Born Mark Fell, the 30th of September 1947 in Stoke Newington, died the 16th of September 1977, aged 29. I remember this happening so well, just going back to St. Greg's, where I went to school. I was in the sixth form. I've been playing table tennis as usual. And somebody just came in and said, oh, have you heard about Mark Bolan? No, what's that? He's dead. And so uh, it was broken to me in such a way. And I was a huge Mark Boland fan. I saw him in 1974 at the Free Trade Hall. And uh, I remember when I got the news, I just went home and didn't come out of my bedroom for two days. Oh, really? Really, it really got to me. Uh, It really did affect me, yeah. And I've been to see him not that long before when he played the Apollo. So every time that Boland Mm. came round, even though he was kind of fading and in and out of fashion and all that kind of thing, and and obviously Bowie had well overtaken him, Mm. it still really affected me. Wow. So was that the first rock star death that, that kind of really hit you? It would have been, yeah, Yeah. it would have been, definitely. Okay, so Mark Feld, born to Phyllis Winifred, and Simeon Feld, who was a lorry driver, his dad. Right. First real brush with showbiz was uh, when he was nine years old, given his first guitar, he began his own skiffle band. By the age of 12, he was in Susie and the Hula Hoops, who were led by the 12-year-old Helen Shapiro. Yeah, now most people know her for uh, Walking Back to Happiness, don't they? Number one in 1961. Uh, Bolan was expelled from school aged 12 for bad behaviour. Uh, he then joined a modelling agency and became a John Temple boy. You've never been one of them, have you? I haven't, mate, no. No, I didn't think you would have. But he was doing catalogue work, uh, oh. and his image was also used, I love this, for a cardboard dummy that went into shop windows. <laughs> so that was his first taste of fame, really. Yeah. You can imagine being sat in the pub there and people going, excuse me, you're not that cardboard dummy, are you, in that shop up the road? I am, actually. Oh, obviously, it stayed with him. So well, he had the first taste. Gets into a recording studio by 1964. Uh, does a single called All At Once, which is a little bit Cliff Richardy. A lot of people were influenced by Cliff and the Shadows and the rest of it. Yeah. Changes his name to Toby Tyler. And then, of course, like most people in the sort of early to mid-60s, gets into Bob Dylan and there's the inevitable Dylan phase. Yeah, now this... So he gets in, he gets involved in show business, gets a little bit serious. He's managed by a former child actor called Alan Warren. Now, this is where it starts getting a little bit crazy. So he skint is Alan and he owes money to his landlord. Ooh. So he goes to see his landlord and sells the management contract that he's got with Mark Bolan for £200 to cover arrears in his rent. Uh, which is brutal, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's bad enough being managed by somebody who doesn't obviously particularly know what they're doing. Yeah. But to, <laughs> to put this young man's life in the hands of a landlord, it, it was just absolutely brutal, but fair play to Phyllis. Yes. She went round to the landlord and said, I don't think so. And he ripped up the contract. That's so he right. did the decent thing anyway. Yeah. So then he changed his name to Mark Boland. Uh, then he dropped the D, of course, got signed to Decca Records. So the thinking here is that Boland got his name because it was sort of, um, you know, Bob Dylan, you get the B and the O and then the L-A-N from Dylan, and suddenly you've got Boland. That's what they reckon. There's also, it's true to say that he shared a flat with James Boland, mm. one part of the Likely Lads, and Boland and Boland. It's all very, very close, isn't yeah. it? So normally when you see rock stars talking about the history, they do reinvent it just to make it a bit more yeah. interesting. It's not that interesting to 
to have nicked it off your mate. Not really, is it? No, but even you know, if he was a famous mate. Yeah, you make your own myth later on, don't you? So 1966, there he is. He's hunting down Simon Napier-Bell, who uh, managed to convince him of his star quality. So Simon Napier-Bell was a big name at this time yeah, already, wasn't he? Yeah. A real impresario and all of the Mickey Mouse and all of those. He was like right up there. He made a few recordings with Bowling, and one of which was uh, You Scare Me to Death, which is a great song and was also, uh, I think it was covered by Jet or Radio Stars, it would have been, okay. which were led by Andy Ellison, who was in John's Children, more of whom in a mm. moment. But uh, yeah, You Scare Me to Death was used on a toothpaste advert. Oh, I love that. And then, of course, he joined John's Children, who had a reputation as a formidable and very sort of elemental live band, didn't they? They used to kind of tear up the place. Yeah, well, Andy Ellison was kind of well, almost like uh, the equivalent of Iggy Pop, you know? I mean, I saw Jet playing. They supported Mick Ronson, I think, mm. or it could have been Hunter Ronson band. And he was very Iggy. And, and years later, uh, on the radio programme, we got John's Children to play for us, and they played a, a gig at the Night and Day Cafe in Manchester. And he was, I tell you, he was hanging from the, uh, the rafters, OK, and the bar staff lo- weren't looking too happy. Whoa. Then he went swinging from the rafters and then launched himself into the drum kit and cut his forehead on the cymbal, so there was blood everywhere. And then he jumped on the bar, and the barmaid was not happy. No. Then he jumped off the bar, and he got those little guns, you know, the little guns with all of the different soft drinks. Yeah, yeah. And he put it in his mouth and squirted it, so he was drinking not very hygienic, so the barmaid who'd been scowling at him for a while, she was great. Mm. She came over and punched him in the arm, and he was like, oops-a-daisy, jumped over the bar again and ran on stage. <laughs> all this to probably only about... 50, 60 people, if that. Wow. Even though Boz Bora, Morris's guitarist, is also a member of the band and was also, on that particular night, playing the same SG that Mark Boland played in John's Children. Wow, that's amazing. What is also perhaps more incredible than anything else, he's still doing that at that age. He's getting on a bit there. Oh, he's a brilliant fella, yeah. Andy Ellison, really is. But uh, they, they toured with The Who, didn't they, they in did. Germany? And there was a, a disastrous, notorious tour. I think the, one of them caused a riot, didn't it? Everybody yeah. fleeing from the uh, from the building. Bowler nearly ended up in the Yardbirds, apparently, for a time. But doing what? I mean, the Yardbirds have got some of the greatest guitarists in rock history playing yeah. for them. I mean, what would his role have been? Well, he wouldn't be frontman, would he? Certainly wouldn't be a guitar player. So you're just thinking, ooh. I don't know. Tambourine? <laughs> really? I really yeah. don't know. So he already knew Bowie by this time, didn't he? I think they got together first in the summer of 1964. Both of them a little bit kind of skint. Yeah. Know, no money coming in. And so what do they do? You just take up whatever's offered. So they agreed to paint the office of uh, his then-manager, Leslie Conn. So you've got both of them, Bowen and Bowie, painting an office. Yeah. And you can imagine them both with all of these dreams. And this is where the friendship was forged, obviously. And they're both aspirations. You know, like they both want to be pop stars, and obviously at that point in time, the rivalry would have been there because he'd be thinking, right, well, I'm going to get there yeah, before you. Yeah. You know, firm friends, fierce rivals. Absolutely safe to say. It also just reminds me of that story Keith Richards used to tell about going into the offices at Chess in Chicago and Muddy Waters, this great hero to so many sort of British R&B bands, painting the wall. Yeah. Because he, he just needed a bit of cash. Yeah, it's incredible, the thought, isn't it, really? 1968, so Mark Boland forms Tyrannosaurus Rex and released four albums. Uh, but I like this, you know, and mm. you can take this however you like, but on the 1969 headlining tour, Mark Boland invited Davy Bowie along as support. Now, crucially, yeah. not to play his music, mm. but to do his mime act. Now, this is Ooh. depicting China's invasion of Tibet. Now, to be fair, Bowie had done this before, hadn't he? Oh, he, yeah. He sort of worked this up into an act and it was all sorts of like... Bell- and whistles going on with it but 
you're not going to impress people going off to see a rock gig, are you? Let's and there's be no, I mean, there's no real competition, is there? There's no chance of Bowie blowing Mark Bowen off the stage doing a my mark to if he was doing his music, possibly. Yeah. And so you have to wonder if there's a little bit of mischief in there, not inviting him to do his music. But he, Bowie got a negative reaction every single night, and that makes me laugh. Bowie said there was a feud between me and the audience every single gig. <laughs> it's not a bad way to kind of come up, though, is it? You know, you learn how to actually be on the stage and hold your presence. And the well, rest absolutely. John Peel. Who was a compare that night? He absolutely loved it, didn't he? Thought Bowie was the best thing on the bill. He did, yeah. Now, this is an interesting turn. Fast forward to the 11th of March 1970, quite possibly the night that glam rock was invented. So, the hype, they play at the Roundhouse. This yeah. is one of those mythical gigs. It's a little bit of footage. You know more about all this because you, you've in, in, interviewed some of the component parts. It was the instance where Bowie came up with the hype. And so you've got Bowie played Rainbow Man, which was strange, really, because his costume just involved a few scarves of different colours. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So Mick Ronson, uh, now in the fold, was Gangster Man. He had the big hat on and the stripy suit and all that. Tony Visconti was Hype Man. And John Cambridge was Cowboy Man. Yeah, that's now, right. that's where it runs out a little bit. It does a bit. Supported by Genesis. By Genesis, yeah. Now, Tony Banks of Genesis. I mean, Genesis, they would travel to their gigs in an old bread van. So that was a tour van to begin right. with. You know, everybody crammed in there. Tony Banks, no, for a fact, was a huge Bowie fan, even at this stage. So he'd gone out and bought Can't Help Thinking About Me, so he's got the first you know, pressing of one of those. Wow. So he was really interested in Bowie. Nobody else had really heard of him on the bill. But Bowie himself had seen the, the trend. Everybody was starting to wear denim again. Everybody's rock music started to become so ordinary. And he thought, we need to dress up, get some pizzazz in there. Right. And as you say, this is kind of proto-glam. So, this is, you know, it does. I think he did a couple of gigs with Hype at the Roundhouse, one in February, one in March 1970. And both of them certainly set the stage for glam later on. Although, you know, not many people there, but no. they did the thing. There is but did you, you spoke to Tony Banks about this, though, did, yeah. did he tell you what the Bowie show was like? Did he, he have his memory of it? He loved it. He just remembered the outfits more than the music, and they said they had so much presence, and a lot of the crowd were just stoned, you know, so it wasn't like a lift-off moment for them. Crucially, though, Mark Bolan was supposedly in the crowd on the front row wearing this sort of plastic breastplate that he'd bought from Woolworths, I believe, like a Roman's breastplate. And he had glitter under his yeah. eyes, didn't he? Now, I love this. So you've got Rainbow Man, you've got Gangster Man, you've got Hype Man, you've got Cowboy Man, and you've got Roman Soldier Man, who's not even <laughs> in the band. It, such is a rivalry. He's thinking, I'm not going to be outdone by this. He probably got wind of it. Yeah. There's great stories, isn't there, about Mark Bolan and, uh, and Bowie in the 60s going down Carnaby Street, rummaging through the bins and mm. picking out all of the clothes that have been thrown out from the dead trendy boutiques and, and nicking them and wearing them and doing their own thing with them, which yeah. is such a, such a brilliant image. It is, it is great, you know, making do. There is also a little story that, but I think Tony Visconti told me this a while back about obviously his hype man costume. It was stolen from the dressing room. Everybody else's costumes were fine, but his was missing when he went back later on. Wow. And so we had to travel back to... They'd all be living at Haddon Hall in Beckenham at that point, Bowie's place. So we had to travel back in the dead of night. Obviously, this is still, you know, February, March. It's cold right. in Bowie's old Bentley, just in his underpants and vest. <laughs> so it's a lovely image, isn't it? You know, with a moustache as well, you know. But not only that, I mean, that means, from what you're saying, that all the other guys went back in their costumes as well. <laughs> so if you can imagine you've got a car going past you at 2 o'clock in the morning, there's a cowboy in there. <laughs> a gangster, a bloke with a load of scarves on, maybe yeah. Mark Boland in a Roman breastplate on the roof. Yeah. And uh, and Tony Visconti in his underpants. You'd be phoning the police, I think. Yeah, I would be phoning yeah. the police, Mo, yeah. OK, just one final thing on that. John Cambridge, I was lucky enough to interview a few years ago, he still has this cowboy hat, and he got it down out the loft for me just to show me. Wow. So, all right, then, move on seven months, and Mark Boland's all glammed up, 
gone electric, mm. you know. So, I mean, following Dylan still, after a, a kind of fashion, you know, yeah, the folk thing gone behind yeah. and T-Rex released Rider White's one, which I have to say for me personally was I saw it on top of the pops and that was my kind of eureka moment, ah. you know. That was the first ever, first ever record I ever really thought, right, that's mine, that. I love that. And it's not the Beatles that everybody loves and, you know, or the Bee Gees that my uncle loved or whatever. Yeah. It was mine, you know. And it reached number two, ironically, kept off the number one spot by Clive Dunn's granddad, mm. which you think would be an insult, but the irony being that it was actually co-written by future Boland and Bowie bassist Herbie Flowers. Yeah. The nicest man on earth. Yeah, so there's this kind of cyclical thing going on here. So, obviously, Boland is a big star. Bowie isn't. And this is where, you, obviously, Space Oddity had been a hit in 1969. It was seen as a novelty hit anyway, yeah. wasn't it? So you could even imagine Mark Boland perhaps thinking, well, yes, it was, but it was a bit of a novelty hit. Dave. Yeah, so, you know, you've probably got the bragging right to this point. But then you go on to 1972... T-Rex mania still really, really high. It's that was there. crazy. I yeah. mean, you know, the, the the Wembley appearances that f- appeared in the film Born to Boogie. I mean, T-Rex to see they called it. Yeah. it saying yeah. as big as the Beatles. It, it really was. It's, it, it's hard to imagine how big they were at that point in yeah. time. And then the other seismic TV moment happens in 72. Bowie's doing Starman on top of the pops. And then the superstar starts to happen. So, Bowie, you get the impression, don't you? Is, is Boland kind of there, kind of looking over his shoulder, thinking, oh, he's coming up behind me here? Well, you would imagine so. I mean, like, uh, but he probably thought, yeah, good luck, mate. Because, like I say, it wasn't like Boland was just quite big. He was just absolutely ginormous, yeah. you know. But over the next two years, you see the crossfade, don't yeah, you? You see yeah. Bowie going up. And you see Mark Boland going down, mm. you know, and uh, it, that must have hurt, really, you know. So Bowie disappeared, obviously, for a couple of years. He went off to America, and we're all sat at home twiddling our thumbs. Mark Boland was still working, but his albums weren't amazing, you know. Mm. They weren't up there with Electric Warrior and Slider. Still some great stuff on there and great singles. Yeah. But it, it wasn't really, you know, his finest moment. No. Um, and so he's looking at Bowie, the rivalry. Yeah, Bowie seems to have won here. So eventually, by 77, though, Bowie's doing low and Heroes and the rest of it is out in Berlin. But Mark Boland is on a bit of, you know, the comeback trail. Yeah. So, you know, the punks love him for a start, so it doesn't do him any harm whatsoever. Gets his own TV show on Granada TV in Manchester, just called Mark. And, of course, who's a special guest there, of course? Bowie turns up. Well, I mean, it was the last one. Yeah. It was the last episode of the series. I love that actual series. And it was Muriel Young from Granada, who was so brilliant. I mean, she did the Bay City Rollers series. She also did the Arrows series, yeah, you know, and, and then gave it to Mark Boland, which did resurrect his career. And, as you say, the punks loved him. He was getting all the punk bands on and everything. And in his band at that particular time was Herbie Flowers. Yeah. I think Tony Newman was in the band as well. Mm. Yeah, I do remember watching it one week and as I say, Herbie Flowers is just one of the most kind of a meek, he's so modest. I remember seeing him on TV years ago and uh, he was being interviewed about all the great records he'd been yeah. on, you know. And he said, I teach bass as well. And then the guy on TV said to him, so uh, how can they get hold of you? And I'm in the phone book, <laughs> you know, and uh, a great thought. Great. This after all of the massive records yeah. he'd been on. But I do remember on one particular episode he was playing and he was gooning about behind Boland. So Boland was really going for it. It was his moment again. He's really making love to the camera, winking, looking great, little jumpsuit on, his Les Paul, all that. And behind him, Herbie Flowers was lolling about and on his base he had a pair of hobnail boots hanging from the headstock. No. And I remember thinking, Herbie, you can't do that, mate. That's Mark Boland and he's enjoying himself and he's looking great. So uh, that was a strange moment, but Mm. the real talking point for the whole series with the fact that, yeah, David Bowie not threatened by Boland anymore. Yes. Mark Boland, probably really grateful to have such a big name on his programme. Mm. He invites Generation X, 
Eddie and the Hot Rods and Davy Bowie all on one programme. How great. Oh, just what could possibly go wrong? Absolutely. Perfect. You know, this is 16th of September 1977. Uh, and you've got lots of stories. Chris Welsh did a great piece in Melody Maker that year. Just uh, he, was, he was invited along. Right. All sorts of people. Keith Oldham there, the PR uh, managers, uh, other PR people. Jeff Dexter, the DJ who'd known Bowie and Boland. He was managing Boland, co-managing Boland at that time. Right. Was there as well. Uh, and all the studio technicians, of course, just milling about around the scenes. Now, bear in mind, it is 1977. Yeah. And, you know, the, uh, we've been through a lot of strikes and strife and all manner of stuff. And so uh, the unions will play a part in a short while, won't they? Yeah. Well, it's great stuff. If you kind of look at Chris Welsh's report here, you know, stuff like Mark Bolden tra- working out what he's going to wear that night, you know, kind of sailing up and down corridors, wondering, you know, what shall I do? Is it, shall I wear the green dress with suspenders? And in the end, he says he turned up wearing a leopard skin creation that even a leopard might have balked at. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. And so uh, Generation X is this pretty fraught. They've already broken down on the motorway. Yes. They eventually get to the studios without the gear and they're thinking, right, OK, we're going to have to borrow some gear from Eddie and the Hot Rods, who you would presume they would know anyway. Yeah. And from Mark Bolan. Uh, and this talk of should we smash guitars up? What will Mark Bolan's guitar cost? 400 quid? Yeah, that yeah. might look good, but they didn't do it. Uh, and also Paul Gray from the Hot Rods overheard this conversation and said, if they smash my bass up, I'm going to smash them up, wow. which he probably would have been capable of. They did the song five times, Generation mm, X. So everything's getting a little bit backed up by this Yeah, time. so you've got Mark Bolan there having to keep doing this introduction. So for the sixth time, you know, he's introducing Generation X and he's saying, basically his line is, this is Generation X. They have a new singer, Billy Idol, who's supposed to be as pretty as me. I ain't so sure. Check it out. So right. that was it, you know. And so eventually they get that done. And then it comes time, of course, for Bowie to make his appearance. Yeah, doing Heroes. And uh, so that goes swimmingly, a great performance and all of that. And then comes a time, still bearing in mind that everything's getting a little bit backed up and a little bit fraught and a little bit close to 7 o'clock, which is uh, the zero hour. And David Bowie and Mark Boland take to the same stage to do Standing Next to You, which is a tune that they've been rehearsing already, uh, apparently, at Mark Boland's hotel room, which has been, it's the speculation being it's a post-house hotel. It's called the Airport Hotel now, I think. Mm. Uh, just by Princess Parkway, not far from the airport. And there is a bootleg of it. I've heard it. Oh, I might even have it. Um, but, um, yeah, and so there, uh, there's talk even by Mark Boland of the fact that maybe Bowie and him will be recording together in the future. So they're obviously getting on well. Mm. Uh, so Bowie does his bit, and then they get to the stage together. Davy Bowie's got a guitar on, unusually, and it's a real rock and roll stomper standing next to you. And as soon as they get together and join shoulders, what should happen? But Mark Boland falls off the stage, mm. and Bowie is laughing his head off. Mark Boland is presumably distraught, and that's where the programme ends. The real crying shame of it all is the fact that by the time the actual programme went out, Mark Boland had passed away. So it's just a, a real double tragedy. Yeah. It's crazy. So Bowie is supposed to have said while he was laughing between fits of laughter, yeah, a wooden box for Mark, please. Uh, and then, look, we've got to do that again. It wasn't finished. And so they get back up there. And, of course, it's 7 o'clock by then and all the lights go out. So there's a reason why it wasn't finished, because nobody would allow it to be finished in the first place. It should have been redone again, but yeah. it really was. I mean, somebody shouted out from the gallery, you've got a blackout, mate. So it was 7 o'clock. And at this point in time, Eddie and the Hot Rods hadn't even performed. They just about got themselves ready to do it when Bowie and Boland launched into Standing Next to You. They were ready to go and do Do Anything You Want to Do, one of the great songs. Mm. And they got herded out alongside everybody 
somebody else in the studio. They just, the unions were not having it. And understandable, they've been working all day and everything, but there must have been some people in there thinking, no, I'm in a room with David Bowie and Mark Boland. You you can't stop now, but rules is rules. Absolutely. So two days wasted, as they complained. Hot rods, fair enough, absolutely. Went off to the dressing room, he said, loads of swearing going on, probably a few kicking of chairs, I imagine, and the rest of it. Uh, I like that, but they do catch the train back to London with David Bowie, don't they, where he shares his beer, wine and chicken legs, which is a great image. Yeah, and they said he was so generous, you know, I mean, like, apparently Bowie went up to the Hot Rods and he knew who they were and he liked the record and everything. Mm. He said, oh, I'm afraid I don't know all of your names, you know, it's just a real gentleman, yeah. which he which he often could be, you know. And they shared the journey back and he told them that he was really getting kind of the urge to go back on the road and all that kind of stuff. So they had, a, at least they've got a fond memory. To be honest, I mean, I would rather, if in their position, spend a train journey with David Bowie and having a laugh with him than perform on TV, so you know, that's Same just here. me. Isn't it? Same here, definitely. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. So B is also for Barrett, Sid Barrett. Okay, well, nobody in his family called him Sid Rob, so just bear that in mind. Roger Keith Barrett was born in Cambridge on the 6th of January 1946. The youngest of five children, he grew up in a comfortable middle-class surrounding, received encouragement from his parents in both music and art. There's a lot of that flying about. Uh, After attending school in Cambridge, where he met the future Pink Floyd musicians David Gilmore and Roger Waters, Barrett won a scholarship to Camberwell Art School in London 1964, and that's when we get into Pink Floyd. Of course, so we know that Floyd had a big influence on Bowie. He covered C. Emily Play on pinups, of course. Named his uh, pre-Ziggy band Arnold Corns after Arnold Lane. He did. Written by Sid Barrett. So by March 66, Floyd uh, playing regularly at the Marquee uh, under the sort of auspices of the spontaneous underground. And Bowie is there and he's taking this all in. Uh, and so you've got the whole psychedelia thing going on. You've got the light projections, this idea of your music as theatre. Uh, Bowie said later, he said Sid was the first person he'd seen who could really decorate a stage. He had this strange mystical look to him, painted black fingernails and his eyes fully made up and he weaved around the microphone and I thought this guy is totally entrancing. Yeah, I mean, do you know, it is strange to think of Bowie, isn't it? Because it's well documented that he would see things and then and be influenced by them. Okay, but at this point in time, so, you know, he's he's loving Lionel Bart, yeah. and he's loving Anthony Newley, and he's loving Pink Floyd, and mm. he must have been like, which way do I turn, you well, know? this is the thing. So he's in the riot squad for a while, isn't he? And he starts to incorporate what he's seeing Sid do, but at the same time, as you say, he's enthralled to all this music hall-type traditional Cockney music, if anything. Yeah, he's bizarre, really, and uh, but he does say, I used to hang out at the marquee with Mark Bolan, even before we decided we wanted to become famous. We became rivals for a couple of years and then we became friends again. We were incredibly inspired by Sid Barrett of Pink Floyd. There was a kind of space mysticism around Sid that we both interpreted in different ways. I saw Pink Floyd at the marquee and was inspired to write musicals, Mm. so I ended up performing a Pink Floyd-like version of Chim Chimney. No. Very odd. (laughs) Well, it sounds it. Okay, so there's a company called management company called Black Hill Enterprises, which was Andrew King and Peter Jenner uh, and they booked Bowie for gigs between 66 and 1970 just as he was trying to make it they also happened to manage Sid so there is a connection there mm. and he'd been introduced to Bowie by Mark Boland so when Bowie met Mick Rock the photographer for the first time Rock said that we hit it off straight away and one of the things we really bonded over that we both loved Lou Reed and knew Lou Reed uh, and Sid Barrett and funny enough Mick Rock ended up doing album covers for both yeah interesting though when Bowie was doing the promo for pinups in 1973 he did say he'd met Sid a couple of times back in the day and said we didn't actually get on all that well but I'm still a great fan of his. 
Right, OK, yeah. So you wonder what stage of Sid he met. Mm, mm. That's it, really. I mean, he seemed like a really affable, sweet guy, yeah. didn't he, early on, but then obviously it just went another way. Well, he died in 2006, did Sid Barrett. And uh, David Bowie, I remember this happening. It's one of those where the news come just... I got a text, I think, saying David Bowie's just gone on stage with David Gilmore yeah. at the Royal Albert Hall as a tribute to Sid. And they did both Arnold Lane and Comfortably Numb, didn't they? Mm. And, uh, yeah, what did Bowie say of him? He said, his impact on my thinking was enormous. A major regret is that I never got to know him. A diamond indeed. Absolutely. I think the other thing as well that he took from Sid, he was singing not in an American accent, singing in a British accent, and that was a big deal for Bowie, and he took that on. The A to Z of David Bowie, with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. B is also for Bowie Net. Right, so this is a quote from David Bowie to Jeremy Paxman, December 1999. We're on the cusp of something exhilarating and terrifying. How right he was. Absolutely. So you've got to kind of go back here. Bowie's, you know, so this, this great intuitive gift he has for sort of preempting trends. So you've got Bowie, you know, pioneering a theatrical rock in 72, taking stage presentations, stage sets, so a completely different level by 74, taking on all these different formats. And of course, the internet is still in its infancy, but Bowie sees the potential of that immediately. He was the first person to offer his music as a download, mm. or one of the first anyway. So he was telling lies and it had 300,000 downloads. And uh, I remember all this happening, me thinking... I don't understand any of this, not yeah. got a clue. Yeah. I mean, I used to think about buying a digital camera and I didn't even have a computer. So that's how little grasp I had of the whole scenario. Yeah. So in 1997, Davy Bowie contacted two web and interactive entertainment pioneers called Robert Goodale and Ron Roy, great name. Mm. And he wanted to explore the possibilities of the World Wide Web. So September 1998... BowieNet was unleashed in North America only at this that's, point in time. That's right. So the idea is what well, you pay a subscription and it gives you access to Bowie's archives. So you've got interviews there, photographs, videos, a whole lot. Also a blog, and webcasts. So you've got to go back. You have to remember here, this is really revolutionary for the time. Nobody else was really doing this or had seen the potential of this. Certainly not. Do you know, and you got your own piece of Bowie. I mean, I joined BowieNet and I do remember, again, I'd got a computer by this time and you were... The old dial-up, you know, I, I don't know if you remember. but I you do remember, to, yeah. You get all that weird alien-like kind of noise, which would be the preemptive strike to yeah. actually getting online, which was a massive thing in itself. Yeah, when it stopped, you thought, right, I'm there, I'm online. Yeah, and you could do anything. I mean, and, and it was in its infancy, but I did join BowieNet, uh, and I think my, um, I don't know, my email address might have been mark.riley at davidbowie.com or something. I thought, oh. <laughs> me and David, we're that close already. But there was a chat room. That was, so you've got all the access to his archive and everything, which is really, really great. Uh, but, yeah, you've got the chat room, mm. which is where, as you would, like now you've got Twitter and all these kind of interactive things. The chat room was it at that point it in was. time. It was. So there's all sorts of kind of scuffles, arguments going on there, people trying to get one up on the other and the rest of it. The great thing is that Bowie himself, obviously being so fascinated by this technology and the idea of it, would often go into the chat room himself under the handle Sailor. Yeah, the great story is that he chose Sailor, which is, of course, an anagram of Isolar, which mm. is the, the company and everything. But when he actually entered the chat room, as would anybody, you would say, say you went on and say, uh, I don't know, maybe Total Blam Blam, who ended up like he running the whole kit and caboodle. Yeah. You would say, hello, Blam, or hello, Mark, or hello, Susie. So when he entered the room as Sailor, you would have to say, hello, Sailor. Uh, absolutely, I love So it. his mischief is in there already. He would, but also, he would chair forums in there, and he would get guests to do so as well, like music 
musicians in his band and stuff like that. It, it was just really revolutionary. Absolutely. So he's the first real superstar to make himself available in that way. And everybody else has done it. When you look at, you know, people like Bob Dylan, they do it regularly. They go in there, you know, under an alter ego. And they're even taking advice from fans as to what they're going to play in the set list, that kind of thing. Yeah. So Bowie kind of saw all that uh, and just got straight in there. Worth mentioning, too, that in that same interview with uh, Jeremy Paxman you mentioned, he says the whole idea of this technology is it's going to crush our ideas of what mediums are all about. Yeah, and so, I mean, all of the more involved stuff with Bowinet, he, he packed in around about 2006, mm. I think it was. But, of course, Bowinet itself is now the hub of all the Bowie fans and, and still exists and is going uh, stronger than ever. And is actually run by a fella called Mark Shirley Adams. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley and recorded and edited by Howard Nock. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode... Berlin, The Buzz, Jim Bowie, Jeff Beck, Black Tie, White Noise, Bertolt Brecht, Black Star, Bowie Literature. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.